Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Dune class number eight. Um, <clears throat> before we start tonight, uh, let me just um, give a couple quick, uh, and okay, really one quick announcement. Um, just wanted to remind everybody that next week's class, we are having the second uh, of our sort of bonus classes. Not that I'm likely to fail to get through everything I want to get through tonight, because as always, I'm sublimely confident that I can get through really any number of slides and any amount of material, but um, of course we will have to, uh, next week uh, to catch up a little bit. Also, I want to return to a few of the questions. I've, I've gone back and addressed some of the questions that we didn't uh, do before, um, that, I, that I didn't get to in the last time, but I still want to encourage you to send questions and observations to me, um, things that we could, uh, that you would like to discuss, and feel free not just to respond to the themes that we've, you know, that I've been focusing on and those kinds of things, but this is also a great chance for us to talk about things that I've been neglecting. Goodness knows we haven't talked about everything that there is. Um, so you can send, them, Nancy says, send them where? Good question. The best way, send them to me by email um, to Olson at MythGuard.org. Um, that's the best way to send them, and I will put those together, and uh, we'll get through as much of that as we can next time. And um, yeah, and of course, we also need to uh, check in. I'll update the Princess Irulan tally, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll we can do a little bit more Irulan discussion. Um, you know, I said last time that we'd follow that up with, uh, in this class also, so we'll we'll look into that too. Um, anyway, so I just want to remind you that that was happening next week, so uh, no additional reading for next week. We're going to pause at the end of book two as we paused at the end of book one, and we'll do that extra class next week. So, okay. But anyway, uh, we are not quite yet done with book two, so, uh, uh, so let's do that. Last time, I mentioned that uh, I wanted still to talk about the scene of Paul's naming and of his choice of his name. Um... So let's look at that. He's just asked Stilgar, of course, uh, what is the name of the, the little hopping mouse um, that he has seen uh, in the rocks. We call that one Muad'Dib, Stilgar said. Jessica gasped. It was the name Paul had told her, saying that the Fremen would accept them and call him thus. She felt a sudden fear of her son and for him. Paul swallowed. He felt that he played a part already played over countless times in his mind, yet there were differences. He could see himself perched on a dizzying summit, having experienced much and possessed of a profound store of knowledge, but all around him was abyss. Um, yes, uh, yes, yes, Nancy, I, I also couldn't help but think of Turin Torabar. I mean, hey, somebody who is uh, making portentous choices which are likely to lead many other people to ruin uh, and who gets a whole bunch of names, how could I not think of Turin Torabar? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, so um, several things happen here, right? The first thing I want to focus on is um, Jessica's recognition. Right. Remember that he, uh, you know, we we saw before, you know, from that final scene that we spent so much time on at the end of book one, when his sort of prescient awareness came upon him and everything. Um, but um, remember the gap that we saw opening between Jessica's comprehension, her understanding, her awareness, and Paul's. How much faster he was going than she was. How much more he saw. 
and we kept and the way that the narrator jumps back and forth um, from inside one person's head to inside the other person's head really emphasized that I thought in that scene right when uh, when Jessica um, you know, when we see what Jessica is thinking, having just seen what Paul is thinking and then going back into Jessica's head and it's like, whoa, wow, she's, you know, she's coming up way short in her assessment of what's going on uh, with Paul here. Um, and here again, we can sort of see that gap, right? Like she's, he of course is not shocked uh, that, uh, you know, I mean, does, does this suggest that she still had doubts or reservations. He told her, they're going to call me Muad'Dib, right? My name is going to be Muad'Dib. Um, you know, we're going to find a place among the Fremen, and they're going to call me Muad'Dib. And now, you know, when this happens, um, she, you know, you know, when Stilgar says the, the name Muad'Dib, you know, she's, she gasps. Oh, my goodness. Like, it's the prophecy come true. Um, and that there seems to be... And you know, a, 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 a you know a sincere element there of wow, he really can see the future. That she didn't really seem to buy it. Remember the sort of the way that she has sort of maintained. Well, I want to say maintained authority over him. Remember the uh, the 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 end of that chapter when he he was digging her out of the sand and everything. When he she calls him into the tent and like makes him do uh, do practice again, makes him do exercises on the muscles of the hand and everything. Um, um, you know, there's there's this way in which she she asserts or reasserts or attempts to 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 perpetuate the relationship of teacher and student with him. Right, you know, she is the teacher. He is the student. Um, you know, he needs to review his lessons. Um, now she is really confronted by the fact. Okay, actually, you know, he is really seeing beyond me. Um, I, uh, I believe, you know, Michael, that you're right. Michael Chuskovsky says she knows so many prophecies are fake. You know, the Benny Gesserits help spread them that she can't believe in prophecy, and so is shocked when it comes true. Yes, yes. Remember also, because in that passage, um, he is, that is, you know, again, back in book one, um, he begins by making deductions, right? Remember when she says, you know, you're, you're not a mentat yet, right? He's talking like a mentat, and she hears him talking like a mentat. So, for instance, the, the, the deduction that he makes about the Fremen bribing the guild, right? That's not a prophecy thing, right? There's nothing mystical about that. He... he um, on very little evidence, uh, figures out what's going on with the guild and the Fremen. But again, it's not nothing supernatural about that, right? Nothing, no, no magic involved there. So you know, when he says, "Yes, we will find a place among the Fremen," they will call me Muad'Dib. He's clearly crossing a line, but she doesn't seem to have crossed it with him um, in sort of recognizing, right? Okay, he can see the future. He's foretelling the future. Um, and she certainly does seem to seem to think it now. Good, Patrick Summers was just saying the same thing. She's been able to think that he's just really good at figuring things out. Um, now he's getting way too specific in his prophecies for that. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, I think Patrick, you said much better what I was just trying to say. Um, uh, good, good. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Powell is uh, quoting uh, the end of The Hobbit. And why should they not prove true? Surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself. Jessica clearly does disbelieve prophecies when she has a, ch a hand in bringing them about herself. Um, 
you know, and even it, it's, you know, to me, it's almost, uh, uh, I almost wonder, Ed, if that's exactly the way in which Jessica was interpreting his earlier statements about their finding a home among the Fremen, right? You know, that he is sort of recognizing, okay, remember, he's, he's, referred to the Missionaria Protectiva, he's either figured that out or something, right? Remember she was getting a little creeped out when he's talking about like, nobody ever told him about the Missionaria Protectiva. How does he know that? Um, but uh, but anyway, so she was she was she, she was a little nervous about that. Um, however, he uh, I, you know again it, it you know because she knows the way in which these prophecies are manipulated and that that's the whole purpose of them is to be manipulated maybe she has convinced herself that he just means this is he's just sort of speaking with confidence that we're going to succeed in doing this cuz that's their plan right their plan is to insinuate themselves among the fremen and her personal plan is to capitalize on the work of the missionaria protectiva in order to insinuate them among the fremen so probably that's what he was talking about right he was sort of uh, you know, asserting the plan rather than prophesying the future. But now it seems clear that he's prophesying the future. Um, uh, especially since, I mean, clearly the implication is neither Paul nor Jessica had any idea what the, that the mouse was called Blood Deep. Um, that's why, you know, he asks, what is the mouse called? And then, you know, because he's been asked what he wants to be named, and so he asks about the mouse. The fact that Stilgar just confirms this kind of out of nowhere, like, oh, that's the prophesied name. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so she's fears suddenly, she felt a sudden fear of her son, that which seems to be this sort of recognition, okay, there really is more going on there than I thought, and also for him, which... And I'm not 100% sure that I understand that. Um, that is, in what sense she is afraid for him, precisely. Um, and I say I don't understand that. I mean, her being afraid for her son doesn't seem like a very cryptic thing. Um, but when I say I don't understand it, what I mean is I don't fully understand exactly what Jessica's level of recognition is here. We know, and we'll come back and talk about that in a little bit, that obviously she lacks the foreknowledge that Paul has about the jihad, right? You know, what he fears, what he sees coming and is afraid of. You know, what he sort of fears for himself about um, is this future that is coming, you know, this terrible purpose that he's trying to thwart. Um, she doesn't understand that at all, so we know she doesn't understand that. Um, there seems, though, in the context here, to be more in this than simply, you know, she's afraid that he's going to get killed. Um, you know, he just survived the fight with Jameis. There seems to be more to it, um, you know, than that. Um, uh, is she afraid that he is going to sort of lose himself within this, the panoplia propheticus, you know, within this, you know... Th within the role, you know, that he is going to play the role of, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Um, Brandon Lovesy says maybe she's afraid of him uh, getting too comfortable with the Fremen. Um, yeah, yeah, possibly, possibly. Um, though her fear for him seems to be explicitly connected um, to, uh, uh, to his prophetic vision here, that's sort of what she's gasping, gasping about in the immediate context of this paragraph. Um, but the other thing I wanted to focus on in this passage, of course, is 
Paul and uh, uh, and and sort of what this means for Paul. There is, of course, you know, a sort of cause and effect here. Um, or you know, to what extent was Paul ignorant? You know, he claims not to know what the mouse was. Um, I think there are two ways that we could read this. One is um, that he knows he's going to be named Muad'Dib, and so he's just fulfilling, you know, th th there's kind of a cause and effect um, here. As, you know, Brandon Lovesey said earlier on, my question with this is, did Paul choose this because of what he had foreseen, or was it destined that he would choose it and that's why he foresaw it? Exactly. That's, uh, that, that, I think, is definitely an open question here. Is Paul just playing the part here? Like, they're going to call me Muad'Dib, so now it's time to do the Muad'Dib thing. So tell me about the mouse. Oh, it's called Muad'Dib. Who knew? Okay, yeah, I'll take that, right? I mean, th that's one way. Now, obviously, I, I, I did that very flippantly, which presumably Paul wouldn't be doing it flippantly here. Um, but, um, but this is uh, uh, one option, right? Well, one option is that he is playing the role. Right, he he knows that he's got this. This is going to happen, and so he's just doing it out. It's also possible. I incline towards the, another reading of this passage, and that is that Paul is attempting to escape his destiny. Um, I suspect that Paul doesn't know that the mouse is called Muad'Dib. Um, he uh, he knows that that what the sort of the signification of Muad'Dib is the one who points the way. Right. Um, he, that's what he said. That's how he explained Muad'Dib. You know, he says, they shall call me Muad'Dib back in, back in Book 1 when he's prophesying it. Um, he knows that it's associated with the North Star uh, in Arrakis, but he... Um, but I'm not sure that he does know that the mouse is called Muad'Dib, that that's where the name comes from. Um, so I sort of wonder if, uh, if he is... Um, asking about the mouse in an attempt to thwart the prophecy, right? Um, how about that mouse? That's unlikely, right? Um, surely that's in a different... You know, uh, uh, mouse, that's very non-jihad-like, right? Uh, I mean, when you think mouse, you don't think massacre of billions, right? So um, how, about, how about we name me the... Small and inoffensive mouse, right? I mean, you know, I, I get it. I'm, I'm sort of exaggerating his mentality here, uh, but um, but maybe the, you know, I, it, it seems to me quite likely that that's Paul, the direction of Paul's thought, right? How about the little mouse? What's that called? Uh, and Stilgar says we call that one Wadib. Jessica gasps and Paul swallows, right? Um, and it's like, oh, of course, of course, the mouse is called Wadib naturally. Um, um, so anyway, I, I, that's my own inclination is to sort of take it that way that this is not him playing a role like Jessica. Remember Jessica's purpose with the Missionaria Protectiva is you know she sort of knows the script, you know though she knows the script that was implanted by the Bene Gesserits, and she's trying to play it out. Right? She's trying to play the role uh, in order to convince them, um, you know, that they should take them in. Paul is not trying to play the role. Right. Um, he is, uh, if anything, trying to resist the role. Sort of. We'll, we'll, I want to be looking at that. Several of you are pointing forward to uh, him, um, his, uh, the way in which he attempts to thwart it. We'll look at that uh, in more detail here as we go. Because um, I think this is, to me, the, the most... To me, this is the most important thing that happens at the end of this book. I... Um, 
there's yeah, I mean, there's 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 lots of other really crucial stuff. You know, there's other really interesting stuff. But for me, what where I am, what I am really fascinated in, is where Paul ends up. I am not sure. I kind of suspect that the turning point of the entire book happens here. Um, the the critical moment, the point of no return, um, happens here in this section before we get to book three. Um, so that's I, that's what I really want to really want to focus on here. Um, but anyhow, okay. So, turns out the mouse is called Muad'Dib. Oh, but I, I did want to point out, um, as um, oh, who was it who was remembering Duke Leto's last words? Um, yes, Philip. Thank you. Philip Lord. Um, was, uh, you know, when I was asking about, you know, which is it? Is it him foreseeing it and therefore doing it, or is him doing it and that's why he foresaw it? Um, uh, Philip Lord was rightly recalling Duke Leto's final insight, right, as he dies. You know, the, 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 the flesh the day makes, the day the flesh makes. Um, you know, which way is it both of them seem to be in play, that there's a real, um, there's a real paradox there. Um, Look at the final image that we get. That is the image that he, his sort of vision, his 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 prescient vision of himself here. He could see himself perched on a dizzying summit, having experienced much and possessed of a profound store of knowledge, but all around him was abyss. Um, this image I find kind of complicated. Because on the one hand, it sounds a lot like the kind of mental pictures that have been described of Paul seeing himself within time made space, right? You know, as he's seeing um, through into the future and back into the past, and he's seeing himself at a nexus, right? We've seen uh, lots of that kind of imagery that, you know, uh, him as a nexus, uh, talking about the, you know, the path, different paths radiating out from where he is and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's, so on the one hand, it sounds kind of like that, right? Him up on a dizzying summit. So that, that, that that's a different kind of metaphor than we've gotten, right? Not him at like the center of a web. Um, we've seen like him down, going down into a valley or peak or well of his vision where he can't see around him. Now he's like the inverse of that, right? He's up at a peak, but instead of being able to see well from that vantage point, instead it describes what is around him as a an abyss. I don't think for that, so tempting as it is to view that him perched on a dizzying summit thing as a uh, um, as that a metaphor in that stream that is in the you know thinking of his time vision I don't think this is a vantage point in the time vision metaphor then although it does some kind of sound like it I don't think so. Um, he felt that he played a part already played over countless times in his mind yet there were differences. So he's thinking about his visions, and he could see himself perched on a dizzying summit. So he's not on a dizzying summit. The vision of himself that he is having is him on a, uh, on a dizzying summit with an abyss all around him, having experienced much and, and possessed of a profound store of knowledge, but all around him was abyss. Um, in this moment, he's not, seeing, he's not talking about this moment. He's not seeing this moment. He is foreseeing a later time, a time when he's going to be perched on a dizzying summit, 
having experience. So he's going to be older. He will have experienced much. He will have learned much. He is going to be super, super high up on a pinnacle, right? And we know his plans are to make himself emperor. Maybe that's going to pan out. I don't know. But uh, all around him is abyss. I think that this is a picture, not of his present, but of his future. Um, that this is him, if at, at the very least, one of the things that he fears, right? Um, that if he achieves this pinnacle, if he goes, if he is, if he go climbs up onto this pinnacle, if he is lifted up onto this pinnacle, there's going to be nothing around him but abyss. Does this mean that he will have escaped the abyss? Does this mean that? Uh, he, you know, instead of looking around and seeing the world stretching out around him or the worlds stretching out around him, he sees abyss. Does that mean that, you know, he will, in order to get to that peak, have to see everything else destroyed? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that that seems to be connected there. Um, that's certainly how I take the implications of this. That that abyss is I do not take that as, again, another metaphor for his, you know, not being able to see the future. Because, again, I don't think he's describing those undulations in time uh, that he describes in other places, um, the waves and troughs. I think this is a vision of his future. Um, yeah, as Tom says, it's, a, it's, a, it's an image of profound isolation uh, and loneliness. Um, yes, yes, it is, and and that that's the irony, right? You know, perched on a dizzying summit, you know, he's there. He is king of the world, right? Um, and yet, profoundly isolated and alone. And but again, it's not just about like. And I'm, but I'm going to be really lonely. It's lonely at the top. I, I, clearly, it's more than that, right? Um, around him is an abyss. Um, what um, what? Implying that at least, and, and, and I'm thinking this, of course, with all the references to the jihad that he sees coming, you know, that he sees himself, you know, as the instrument of, um, you know, all around him was abyss in the sense of destruction that he has brought about, um, you know, that he has been involved in. And this is, of course, where his mind goes right away. And again, he remembered the vision of fanatic legions following the green and black banner of the Atreides, pillaging and burning across the universe in the name of their prophet Muad'Dib. That must not happen, he told himself. Is that the name you wish, Muad'Dib? Or, is that the name you wish, Muad'Dib? Stilgar asked. Notice how... You can read that either way, that sentence, right? As if he's addressing him as Muad'Dib, as if it's a done deal. Hey, hey uh, Muad'Dib, do you wish the name Muad'Dib? Oh, that's what I thought, right? Or, you know, I, I, so I, I love the way that that sentence is sort of like implies its own fulfillment. Um, I am an Atreides, Paul whispered, and then louder. It's not right that I give up entirely the name my father gave me. Could I be known among you as Paul Muad'Dib? You are Paul Muad'Dib, Stogar said, and Paul thought, that was in no vision of mine. I did a different thing. But he felt that the abyss remained all around him. Okay, so he's got to prevent the jihad, right? He can't just go along with his vision. He doesn't want to just go along with his vision. Um, this, I agree with several of you who were pointing to this before, seems to be pretty clear evidence that he's not just playing up to the prophecies, right? I think you should name me Muad'Dib because, you know, 
that's what I, uh, I foresaw that, so let's make that happen. He wants to prevent what he foresees, right? Um, yeah, Neil Ottenstein says it's just a small pebble of a change in front of the avalanche. Yeah, and Neil, I can't, um, I'm not sure how he th what I think about that. I'm tempted on the one hand to say, oh, that was cunning, Paul, right? Um, you know, you feel that you can't just turn away from the destiny, right? Um, you know, like, uh, because he, you know, he's foreseen that, um, you know, they will follow the name of their prophet, Muad'Dib, um, you know, and it's like, is that the name you wish, Muad'Dib, Stilgar said? And Paul says, actually, no, call me Biff. I would like to be known among you as Biff. And they're, you know, like thinking that, you know, the, the frantic hordes will not follow the name of Biff. He doesn't do anything like that bold, right? Um, it's just a subtle change. And again, I'm tempted to see the subtle change. Paul Muad'Dib. Um, I'm tempted to see that subtle change as like, ooh, maybe that's a cunning thing. Like, he knows he can't do that, right? He knows he can't. He knows they're not going to call him Biff. So there's no point in, in fighting that. Um, but, uh, uh, so, you know, but, but still it could have like a butterfly wing effect, right? You know, the, the, the air disturbed by the beating of a butterfly, which causes a hurricane on the other side of the world, uh, proverbially, right? Um, maybe that's what he's trying to do here. You know, so just introduce a small change to do a different thing, any different thing. If any different thing is done, then his, then the, his vision of the future is no longer valid, right? It could be different in some ways, so let's do some really small things. So sometimes... I, uh, I I think that way. Other times, I think, Paul, that was kind of wussy, actually. Um, like, yeah, you did a different thing, but it's not much of a different thing. It's kind of weak. Um, you still took the name Muad'Dib. Uh, uh, Paul Muad'Dib, yeah. Um, but, of course, one thing that you'll notice as we go on in the book Almost nobody ever calls him Paul Muad'Dib. Everybody just calls him Muad'Dib anyway. It's like, okay, if you didn't want to be called Muad'Dib, why'd you call yourself Muad'Dib? Um, anyway, there's, uh, <clears throat> there's, there's. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm not sure exactly how to take this. Um, and more importantly, I'm. I think it's an important question because I think it tells us something about his motivations. Um, is this a cunning plan, um, you know, determinedly to resist the future? Or is this um, his helplessness in the face of the future? Or even, in some sense, his unwillingness completely to turn away from the future? He knows he's supposed to be called Muad'Dib, so he accepts that even knowing what it's associated with, but he just wants to tweak it, even if, uh, even if he doesn't um, uh, accept the whole thing. Um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. This is exactly one of the main things that I want to focus on as we go through the rest of class today. What exactly is his, both his professed relationship to his visions of the future, and what is reflected in his actions and in his choices. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Sean Hyde, you're right. He has talked about small actions having large changes. That's that's uh, that's certainly um, 
yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to accept that possibility. Um, it does seem to be, and I agree with you, Michael, uh, that uh, he's asserting the possibility of free will, um, uh, sort of, uh, sort of testing the waters. Both Michael and Philip Lord used exactly that phrase to describe what Paul is doing here, testing the waters. Um, by the way, I think I applaud both of you for that image, as that seems an entirely appropriate image. Um, have you noticed how much aquatic imagery there is in this book? Um, this is something that's been kind of growing on me, and I wasn't paying attention to it so much at the beginning. We've noticed it occasionally as we've gone along, um, but it is persistent and pervasive throughout this book. Um, the frequency with which ocean or water images are used as similes and metaphors, um, the number of times things are compared to the sea, or to waves, or to swimming, or to diving, or wells, or anything like that. Um, it's very, very frequent throughout this book, and I think given the significance of water, not accidental. Um, uh, uh, so anyway, that's uh, um, an observation that comes uh, from... Um, uh, oh, I'm totally blanking on his last name. Um, email conversation I was just having with uh, with Eve uh, just earlier today. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, Eve van Genip. Um, he was pointing out the the water imagery. Um, and uh, Philip points out that the metaphors, of course, would be completely alien to the Fremen. That's one of the fascinating things about it, isn't it? More often than not, it is. Um, used to describe Arrakis things like the desert or sandworms or um, you know or like Paul's experience uh, you know his his sort of Prussian experience um, they're all from Paul's point of view so on the one hand I mean, on the simplest level you can say well that, that all makes sense because of course he's from Caledon so you know that's how he thinks about things but um, uh, but there's um, there's, there's more to it. I think it's it's not it's not it's not simply that. I think that the way that it works, the way that it um, brings in all of this uh, water imagery in the Arakeen context, I think is uh, is 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 clearly pretty uh, pretty significant. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, but I I am to stop uh, talking about the metaphor, Philip, that you and Michael used, and instead talk about the substance of what you were actually conveying, that Paul is testing the waters. He is experimenting to see if it is possible, or to what extent it is possible, to deviate from what he foresaw. Um, perhaps, perhaps, again, if so, I can't help but think it's a slightly timid experiment, but, uh, you know, that might be me judging too harshly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Rachel Draper asks the excellent question, have we seen any examples so far of him actually changing anything drastic with his decisions? No, no, I don't think we have. Um, I don't. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Nancy says, uh, so he remains foreign even as he's getting to know Arrakis better than, well, anyone. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, but I think it also works on several other levels, too. Um, I think of it, to me, it even seems cumulatively to have the kind of effect 
it, it makes me think of the environmental change that the Fremen, you know, through Liat Kynes are trying to bring about on Arrakis, right? We have the des you know, we have there's the desert world that is, right? Um, the, the 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 waterless waste that actually surrounds the characters um, in the action that we are seeing. But then there's this vision of Arrakis, of watery Arrakis, um, which the Fremen cling to, uh, and which they, you know, in their own minds, sort of superimpose on the Arrakis around them. And the metaphorical structure of the book serves to do that for us, right? As we are experiencing Arrakis, as we are really being introduced to all of these Arakeen things, we are being given all of this aquatic imagery, which is so so superimposed upon the desert scene of Arrakis, is this all of this water stuff, this ocean metaphors, um, and uh, so we too are seeing, you know, sort of indirectly, we're being kind of glimmed, given a, a a a kind of a glimpse of watery Arrakis, or again made to think of water um, and recall water, even as we are looking at the desert. Um, but uh, anyway, um, uh, I, I, I didn't mean to talk about that, but there we are. Um, moving on with Paul's names. Stilgar tells him the interpretation. Uh, remember, he had an interpretation, right? The one who points the way. That's what Muad'Dib means. That's what they're going to call me. I will tell you a thing about your new name, Stilgar said. The choice pleases us. Muad'Dib is wise in the ways of the desert. Muad'Dib creates his own water. Muad'Dib hides from the sun and travels in the cool night. Muad'Dib is fruitful and multiplies over the land. Muad'Dib we call instructor of boys. That is a powerful base on which to build your life, Paul Muad'Dib, who is Usul among us. We welcome you. Uh, powerful base on which to build your life, base of the pillar. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so here are the things that Stilgar says they associate with Muad'Dib, and this is all interesting because we've not heard this, right? Paul either didn't know this or didn't reveal it um, about sort of the, the these other associations with Muad'Dib. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, one thing that it, one sort of trend that it shows is, you know, he said, you know, we will be, you know, accepted among the Fremen, we will find a home among the Fremen, and we see that seems to be one implication of Muad'Dib, right? You know, you will, you will be thoroughly integrated, you will become wise in the ways of the desert, hiding from the sun and traveling in the cool night. Um, but then we have the fruitfulness, multiplying over the land, instructor of boys, you know, you shall, um, you know, many shall come to follow you, you shall be, you know, your presence among us will be fruitful, um, you know, you shall be the instructor of many. Um, and of course, yes, Philip, he is going to be, uh, he is going to be a pillar, um, uh, like the pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. Um, he is the base of the pillar, the foundation of the pillar, uh, presumably the pillars that will, uh, that will guide them. Um, this is a powerful base on which to build your life. Uh, yeah, there's also a powerful base upon which to build the future jihad, Paul. Way to go. Strong work preventing the jihad right there. That was, uh, that was really good. Um, it may, I may sound harsh in accusing Paul of his failure to prevent the predestined future. Um, but what I find, and this is the first moment in which I really begin to find this interesting, is that... 
Paul keeps declaring to himself very firmly, this must not happen, right? We just saw that. Um, he's, go he is determined to, um, he is determined to prevent the jihad, right? I, I refuse, I, I, I reject that future, I turn away from that. So, um, when are you going to start turning away from that, exactly? Remember, we got some hints of this when we were looking at the, that, the vision of his uh, fight with Jameis, right? It was the vision that he had before the fight with Jameis, when he saw how crucial were the events there in that cave, um, and how most of them led to him bleeding to death from a knife wound, right? We were talking about that last time. Um, again, it's going to sound harsh. At the time, it's easy to take that, you know, like he, he, he sees many possible outcomes for the future and most of them are of him being dead, right? So the, clearly the crucial question is, is he going to be able to survive this crisis? Can he beat the odds? The odds are he's going to die. Um, can he beat the odds and survive? Can Paul emerge from this victorious? Victorious in his fight with Jameis, more largely victorious in his struggle to survive and find a place among the Fremen. Is Paul going to win? Okay. Yeah, he does. He succeeds in not dying, of, in not bleeding to death from a knife wound, right? Paul won. Paul beat the odds, right? But what does winning look like? Um, beating Jameis is what he had to do to gain acceptance among the Fremen and his mom, right? This was the challenge. To Jameis's challenge was the thing that was standing in the way. Stilgar's ready to accept Jessica, right? Ready to believe. Um, Jameis refuses, right? Jameis is standing up against it. Um, if Paul loses, then not only is Paul dead, but Jessica is going to be rejected as well. That's the law, right? Um, right, exactly. As Gerald Michaels says, as G Gerald Michael says, Paul Victorious is the path to the jihad. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. What is uh, what does winning look like? Right. Yeah, he survived. Yes, through by surviving, by winning that battle, he confirmed Jessica's place. Um, in other words, enables her to do her missionary protectiva thing. Um, enables them to find a place with the Fremen and not just a place with the Fremen, right? Not just like, you know, they're going to be the, you know, these outsiders welcomed among them. No, they're going to have this important role, right? He's going to become the instructor of boys, figuratively as Muad'Dib, literally in helping to teach, you know, the Fremen warriors the weirding way. Um, weirding, by the way, is a, I love the word weirding. Um, but anyway, um, you know, so again, it's not just that he's going to, that they're going to be able to be safe from the Harkonnens, you know, they're going to be taken in and not killed out of hand. This is clearly the path to the Jihad. He knows this. He sees this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Chris says, if Paul prevented the prophecies or vision, there would not be a book called Dune. There would be a book called The Magnificent Harkonnens. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. Um, and to me, that's one of the really interesting things, is that 
it isn't obvious to me that Paul has really good options here. And it's one of the reasons that I'm slightly apologetic for being harsh on Paul here, um, because it's not clear what uh, what a good outcome looks like here. Um, he never sees, we haven't gotten any description of what is the alternative to the jihad, right? Um, what does a non-jihad future look like exactly? We don't know. We're not told. Um, uh, he All he foresees is the option of him dying, right? Um, but, um, yeah, uh, Tom asks, is there a non-jihad future with Paul alive? Hard to believe it. Um, and, in fact, he's going to go on to uh, state that he doesn't believe that at all. Um, let's... Uh, Let's look at this here uh, in a second. So let's, uh, let's keep going. Um, Jessica, of course, sees what's happening, right? Um, sees not only that they're, you know, finding their way with a friend, but sees the potential of this, right? Um, Jessica felt the religious ritual in the words. Stilgar has just been talking about the, how they're going to, you know, this is storing up the water to change the face of Arrakis. Jessica... Jessica felt the religious ritual in the world's words noted her own instinctively odd response. They're in league with the future, she thought. They have their mountain to climb. This is the scientist's dream. And these simple people, these peasants, are filled with it. Her thoughts turned to Liette Kynes, the emperor's planetary ecologist, the man who had gone native, and she wondered at him. This was a dream to capture men's souls, and she could sense the hand of the ecologist in it. This was a dream for which men would die willingly. It was another of the essential ingredients that she felt her son needed. People with a goal. Such people would be easy to imbue with fervor and fanaticism. They could be wielded like a sword to win back Paul's place for him. Wow, wouldn't that be great? Yeah, fervid, fanatic soldiers fighting to win back, fighting under the Atre you know, to, for the Atreides banner. That sounds great! Wow! This is going to be awesome! What an opportunity! Right? This Here's Jessica's thinking, right? Totally understandable. Yeah, several of you are pointing out the same thing. Neil says, fanaticism, yeah, just what Paul wants. Um, exactly, and exactly, Brandon, as Brandon Lovesey says, she doesn't see the entire end result. She sees Paul as Duke, not starting as Jihad. Exactly. We see how much further ahead Paul is thinking. For Paul, the question is not, you know, that is the big question is not, am I going to survive? Am I going to, you know, restore my father's dukedom? Am I going to become emperor? The big question is, what, what are the consequences of those things? What, what much larger chain of events is all of that stuff going to kick off? Um, Jessica clearly doesn't see that at all. Instead, she's just articulating. You know, I called the I you know I gave the subtitle Atreides Plan B. Remember, Atreides Plan A was let's go to Arrakis and recruit the Fremen. Right, that was their ace in the hole. We're going to go and we know it's a trap. We know not only do we know generally that it's a trap, we know exactly how it's a trap. We know precisely what the Harkonnens are going to be doing and how the Emperor is in league with them and they're going to bring in Sardaukar and Harkonnen uniforms and, and this is all. And we know all this is going to happen. We know that this is a hopeless trap, but we know something they do not know, right? And that is the Fremen. 
that the Fremen are a force that neither the Harkonnen nor the enemy nor the Emperor possibly understand, and that we can use the Fremen as our weapon against the Emperor. They can be our, you know, counter Sardaukar, and uh, and that's so that's 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 plan A. Yes, Nancy, uh, the Atreides are not left-handed. Uh, I'm, I'm glad somebody got my reference. Um, exactly. So that that. That was Atreides' plan A, right? Uh, it didn't pan out too much uh, because uh, Thufir Hawat miscalculated. Oh, he ever does that. Thufir Hawat miscalculated uh, how many uh, uh, they were going to bring in, uh, so uh, it didn't. Plan A didn't pan out in time. This is this is Atreides' plan B, right? It's just like the original Atreides' plan, just you know. Afterwards, um, you know, the use of the Fremen to recover instead of to retain uh, their position. But um, but anyway, you know, it's uh, it's still essentially the the um, it's still essentially the same plan. She's seeing things through that same grid, through that same you know, from that same point of view, and we can see, having been inside Paul's head, we can see how limited. Um, we can see how limited her view is. Uh, Nancy Fosberg was pointing out that wonderful line here about the Fremen being in league with the future. Nancy, one of the things that I think Herbert does so well in this book, um, it's one thing to write a book about prophecies, right? About somebody who has visions of the future and struggling with those visions. Um, to some extent, that can be a really cheap thing to do. Um, I, I remember when I was very young, I used to be very impressed with books that contained prophecies that were fulfilled later on in the book. I used to think that was super, super cool. And then it was only like later on that I came to realize how easy that kind of is to do as an author. Right? I mean, when you've already planned out the whole book, you already know what's going to happen, you can just write back into the, you know, the way in which the author is sort of outside the stream of the narrative. I never really, I didn't, you know, being myself as a reader immersed in the stream of the narrative, I, you know, I wasn't really thinking about it like that. Sometimes, you know, prophecy books are simple, right? It's just, okay, I yeah, would predict this thing, and, and gosh, I make that thing that I predicted come to pass. That's not so hard. Um, but um, what Herbert does is something much greater than that. Um, he really brings into question what is the relationship between present and future. You know, it, it invites us to, you know, like Duke Leto's final uh, final insight, final thought, the way that he plants and invites us, not only, he doesn't just show us Paul wrestling with his visions of the future, um, he invites us to think from several different directions. Um, there, are, there, are, there are these moments again and again that keep prodding us to think about this relationship. So just that phrase, Nancy, just that floats in there, right? Um, you know, they're in league with the future. The Fremen are in league with the future. Um, yeah, they are. Right, um, we know that they are, um, and you see the irony, right? We see the terrible, biting irony of this. She's talking about the scientists' dream, right? Their ecological vision for uh, for Arrakis, as you know, taught them by Kynes and Kynes Senior, right? Um, they're in league with the future in the sense that they are dedicated generation, you know, cross generation, you know, through across multiple genera generations, um, committed to bringing 
about a paradise on Arrakis. But Paul knows that the path to that is through them, you know, making not a paradise but a hell, right? Through the through the hell of the jihad, um, the massacre and the slaughter. Um, it's uh, so yeah, they're in league with the future, but it, you know, is the league that the that the um, Fremen have made with the future a devil's bargain, right? Paul sees that it is, feels that it is. Um, and yes, Philip, you're right, you see it coming the whole time. Um, and I go back to an observation that we made, something we were joking about in the first couple classes, about the non-spoilers, right? How not only is almost everything that happened revealed to us in advance, um, the one possible exception to that being Jessica's parentage, right? But... Uh, um, but not only is it revealed to us, it's revealed to the characters, right? Everybody in the story knows what's going to happen uh, in the future. Um, and it's, it's, it's a story that invites... This is why I think um, seeing this story simply as Paul rising to power, right? Um, you know, this is all an upward trajectory book. This is a, this is a you know... A victorious story of Paul Muad'Dib. Um, it never feels like that, I think, um, because we are being invited to look at this not only from multiple different, you know, points of view as the narrator jumps from one point of view to another with very little direction uh, and very little um, sort of fanfare, um, but nevertheless, but also. We're also invited to see it um, again, not just through different grids, but from different, from wholly different vantage points. Um, whether it be from the vantage point of somebody like Jessica looking forward here in the moment pragmatically, or from Paul who's seeing things in his Prussian vision, or from Princess Irulan who's writing about this all as history. Right. Um, anyway. Um, But, as I said, Jessica, clearly, her point of view here is very much um, sort of plain vanilla Atreides point of view, right? Um, she is attempting to succeed. Her goals um, do not take into account any possibility that success would be a bad thing. That Paul rising to power, that Paul succeeding, that, you know, having fervid and fanatic uh, uh, people supporting him could be anything but a good thing. Um, Remember, this is one of the things, one of the final thoughts of Liat Kynes before he died, right? Having brought up Liat Kynes, we skipped him. Let's go back to him briefly. Kynes saw the hawk move. Interesting, isn't it, that it's hawks that are closing in on Kynes uh, and threatening to start pecking him and eating him alive before he dies. Kine saw the hawk move. It approached his hand a cautious step at a time while its companions waited in mock indifference. The hawk stopped only a hop away from his hand. A profound clarity filled Kynes' mind. He saw quite suddenly a potential for Arrakis that his father had never seen. The possibilities along that different path flooded through him. His father had just been outlining exactly the plan which Jessica sees in fulfillment, right? You've got to recruit them. You've got to, you've got to make, um, you know, ecology a religious duty among them. Um, kind Senior is in a 
quasi-Bene Gesserit kind of way that is like the Bene Gesserit's kinds is uh, kind senior um, is outlying this plan to manipulate the superstition, the superstitions and the religious fervor of the Fremen in order to get them to embrace the ecological vision, right? Um, but then Kynes here sees this other possibility, which his father then utters, or the shade of his father, or the hallucination of his father, the projection, perhaps, of his father, projection from his own mind. No more terrible disaster could befall your people than for them to fall into the hands of a hero, his father said. Um, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, Brandon Losey says that he sees this with the eyes of death. Uh, exactly, right, just like Feanor. Um, Brandon, I didn't make Tolkien reference, you did. Um, yes, and Kevin, I agree. Kevin Morgan, you know, uh, notes the significance of the capital letter there. It's not just a, it's not, it's not just a hero. It's a, a, a capital H hero, you know, um, if this happens, um, this could get ugly, right? This could backfire in a really serious way. Um, and again, I think that one of the things that is indicated here, one of the things that we see is, like Jessica, Kynes is in a sense seeing further than Jessica here in that at least he has this moment of uneasiness um, about possible outcomes for the path that he has started. He is as much responsible for this as anybody else, right? Um, he is as certainly, I think, at least as responsible for what happens as the Missionaria Protectiva are, right? He cultivated this. It is because of the culture that he cultivated here on Arrakis among the Fremen um, that Paul, that enabled, you know, that Paul is enabled, you know, it's not just his word, right, that he has told the Fremen to, to seek out and protect Paul and Jessica. Um, it's not just that, right? Um, it, it is that, but that's only the tip of the iceberg, right? He has created the entire atmosphere in which what will happen can happen. He at least, right before the end, sees a glimpse of the fact that it could go awry, though it's not obvious that he sees everything perfectly clearly. Um, uh, but possibly notice even the similarity in language between uh, this and, and Paul's own visions, the possibilities along that different path flooded through him, like he begins to see in that moment possible futures. Um, but... Um, Yeah, so he at least sort of gets a hint of it, but he doesn't, you know, he, he certainly, at the time he was doing it, did not see that um, there could be this kind of a, this, this kind of a, a, a downside. Um, now, back to Jessica. She heard approaching footsteps, turned to see Paul come out of the cave's depths, trailed by the elfin-faced Cheney. There's another thing, Jessica thought. Paul must be cautioned about their women. One of these desert women would not do as a wife to a duke. As concubine, yes, but not as wife. Then she wondered at herself, thinking, Have I been infected with his schemes? And she saw how well she had been conditioned. I can think of the marital needs of royalty without once weighing my own concubinage. Yet I was more than concubine. Um, exactly. Kevin, Kevin Morgan is recalling, of course, just as I was, the infection. That word infection kind of jumps out at you, doesn't it? Um, uh, 
he was infected by terrible purpose. When? When was he infected by terrible purpose? Right after, right, exactly, Brandon, right after the Gom Jabbar, right? That is, it's this Bene Gesserit thing which leads to that moment when he's infected with, uh, uh, with his terrible purpose. And now we have her doing a kind of Bene Gesserit political manipulation thing, right? She's thinking, um, you know, in practical terms, um, you know, in political terms, like a Bene Gesserit should, and talking about being infected by his scheme. So, you know, it's, it's now, it's, it's what it's working, it's working the other way now. Um, yeah, Chris says that his scheme seems an odd choice. She seems to be the one scheming. Yeah, now, I mean, she's referring, of course, explicitly to the scheme that he's already told her about aiming at the throne, you know, that, you know, his, his plan to make himself emperor, um, which seems a little crazy, right? I mean, at least one would be forgiven for thinking that that was a little insane. Um, you know, the whole, like, okay, so we've lost our entire dukedom and we're on the run and we're just trying to save our lives, but not, not my plan now is not just a plan for survival. It's not just a plan for the restoration of the Atreides. It's a plan to seize the the emperor, the the throne. You know, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna seize the imperial throne. Uh, instead, I'm going I'm 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 all in on this you know survival thing. Um, it's a pretty grandiose scheme. She was not at all sure about that plan at first, right? When Paul outlined it, that's clearly what she's referring to. Like, oh, I was resistant to the whole emperor scheme. Now, uh, now, I, you know. I'm going along with it, I guess. Um, but um, but again, Kevin, I come back too to that word infection, right? Um, that seems an awfully conspicuous word uh, in this instance. Um, in what sense is she infected uh, with his schemes? Um, and and. I don't know. Um, I think uh, I think that she is. Um, one thing that this shows us is the limitation of her vision again, right? Um, have I been infected with his schemes, lady? You're not thinking like he is right now. Like it, you know. If you think in thinking this way, you're going along with him. Like, ah, yes, Paul has these big plans about making himself emperor and stuff. Um, which, remember, uh, he mentioned the fact that the, that the emperor has no sons and only daughters. Um, so clearly, a part of that emperor scheme is going to have to be him marrying uh, one of the uh, marrying into the into the imperial family. Um, but um, uh, but that's that's not what Paul is, you know, he says that's his plan, but that's not centrally what he's shooting at, right? Um, she sees how well she has been conditioned. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But she sees the path, right? The path to victory, right? That would be a win, right? Paul not only surviving, not only recovering the Atreides' honor and, and position, but becoming emperor. Um, that would um, that would be a description of victory, clearly, obviously. Um, 
Yeah, that would please the ancestral dignity, says Brandon Lovesey. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but Brandon, only if he puts the head of the bull and the portrait of the matador up in the imperial dining hall. That's what has to happen. Um, Paul's reaction to her. This is Paul has just taken the ballast set and sung that love song to Cheney. Um, <laughs> Kevin thinks it should be the head of the Baron. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that would work. And Jessica heard the after stillness that hummed in the air with the last note. Would you have the head of Baron Harkonnen on one side and a portrait of Duke Leto on the other side? You know, let's 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 update it a little bit for the next generation. Okay. And Jessica heard the after stillness that hummed in the air with the last note. Why does my son sing a love song to that girl child, she asked herself. She felt an abrupt fear. She could sense life flowing around her, and she had no grasp on its reins. Why did he choose that song, she wondered. The instincts are true sometimes. Why did he do this? Paul sat silently in the darkness, a single stark thought dominating his awareness. My mother is my enemy. She does not know it, but she is. She is bringing the jihad. She bore me. She trained me. She is my enemy. Um, one thing that I find really striking here is what seems almost to the reader a non sequitur, right? Um, Paul takes Jameis's Balisette and he sings a song. And, you know, it's a love song. And Jessica is thinking about marriage alliances and concubinage and um, the Fremen women and needing to caution Paul sooner rather than later about the Fremen women. Um, and she asks these, why did he choose that song? Why did he do this? And then we shift back to Paul's awareness and I feel the, the, the sort of implications of, or rather, I feel the expectations aroused by ending the paragraph with those questions. Or that we're going to get the answers when we switch to, switch to Paul's mind. Why did he choose that song? Why did he do this? Paul sat silently in the darkness, thinking of why he chose, thinking of the reason that he chose that song, right? I, you know, I got nothing to say that, but you know, we'd get the reason, right? And instead, what's going on in Paul's mind has nothing to do with love songs, it seems, right? Doesn't seem at all obviously an answer to that question. Why did he do this? My mother is my enemy, right? Um, The simple fact is easy enough to understand. That is, if we take that last paragraph on its own, it's simple enough, right? She is bringing the jihad. Atreides' plan B, right? Um, she does not see far enough ahead. She thinks that winning looks like our getting the Fremen to support us with fervor and fanaticism and me becoming Duke and maybe me becoming Emperor. That's what victory looks like, and she's doing everything that she can to bring that about, including playing up to exactly the things 
most calculated um, to bring about the jihad. Okay, that's simple enough. But it's the transition that I find so striking here. Um, why did he choose that song? Why did he do this? Well, again, that by itself seems sort of easy enough to understand. As Brandon loves, he says, I think it's pretty obvious why he would sing a love song to a girl, especially one that he had seen in a vision before and had, you know, had his visions clearly suggested a certain level of intimacy between them. Um, so, you know, when he's, um, um, when he's seeing the, the visions of himself and this girl, and then he meets the girl and he recognizes her as the girl that he, that has appeared in his, uh, in his present dreams time and again. Um, I agree. That too doesn't seem that much of a mystery to understand. And the mere fact that she finds it so mysterious, um, would seem to be another indication of her, of, you know, again, how much she doesn't see or doesn't take seriously. Remember, he's told her the visions. Um, you know, he hasn't said, oh, by the way, Cheney's that girl that I was talking about. Um, but, um, but clearly, uh, there's, uh, um, there's, there's at least the potential for that, right? Um, and yeah, Philip, I, I too really like the way in which, again, it's it's like the naming thing, like the Muad'Dib name, right? Um, how he gives the water counters to, you know, he, he engages in a courtship ritual with Cheney without even realizing that it's a courtship ritual, right? Um, you know, it, it gives it that sense of, uh, that sense of destiny. Um, she doesn't know it, but she is. She doesn't understand what's going on. Um, Paul is not just thinking of Cheney here. But again, juxtapose the two things. My mother is my enemy. She is bringing the jihad. She is my enemy. Okay, so this is Paul, Mr. Crusader against the jihad, right? Mr. The jihad must be prevented at all costs. So, um, Paul, why did you sing that song to Cheney? Because you saw in the future that that vision of the future that you were going to be with Cheney. You mean that vision of the future that included the jihad that you're all fired determined to prevent? Yeah. Hey, Paul, why did you sing that song? Why are you doing this? Why are you cheerfully going along? Now, again, it's not that I think that it's that hard to understand. Um, you know, he's obviously falling in love with Cheney. Um, he feels this bond with her. He feels this connection with her and doesn't fight that, doesn't seem to want to fight that. The point that I make is simply, I think that one of the things that this transition draws my attention to, I think, is the kind of a conflict of interest in Paul. He wants to prevent the jihad, but he also wants, on a plainer, simpler level, the plainer and simple level on which his mother is operating generally, um, he wants things to work out well. He wants to survive. He wants to avenge his father. He wants to reestablish the Atreides name. He wants to be with Cheney. And, you know, I mean, this is, those are all very simple things. But that's the path to the jihad. So you have this conviction, this must not be. 
but it's an abstract conviction, right? What does victory look like? Um, does it mean turning away from everything that seems like success and happiness? Um, anyway, um, I, I think this is a conflict that I think we see in Paul. Look at his reaction to the death of Jameis. Um, this is during the funeral ceremony. Slowly, Paul got to his feet. A sigh passed around the circle. Paul felt the, diminish the diminishment of his self as he advanced into the center of the circle. It was as though he lost a fragment of himself and sought it here. He bent over the mound of belongings, lifted out the balisset. A string twanged softly as it struck against something in the pile. I was a friend of Jameis, Paul whispered. He felt tears burning his eyes, forced more volume into his voice. Jameis taught me that when you kill, you pay for it. I wish I'd known Jameis better. Blindly, he groped his way back to his place in the circle, sank to the rock floor. A voice hissed. He sheds tears. We can see Paul's own awareness of himself, his consciousness of his role. This is a fascinating moment because in this description... Notice what's totally absent here in this passage is any glimpse of that future vision, right? Any of that psychedelic, uh, uh, you know, mystical uh, vision of time made space, anything. All we get here is a description of a teenage boy in a very intense emotional moment, right? We see him acting stubbornly. I don't want to accept his water. Right, I don't, I, 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 I don't want his water. Um, we see the way that he, you know, and Jessica's like think this through. We see several times she has to prod him. Right, you're not thinking here, Paul. Um, she doesn't say that. She's more indirect than that. But yeah, um, exactly as both Kevin and Brandon are pointing out, um, he's he's only 15. Right, he's 15 years old, and there are times when he sounds and acts like a 15 year old boy. Um, uh, and again, it's one of the things that I think um, is really fascinating and one of the things that makes this book so compelling to me. I would be really interested in this book if it were merely, you know, through Paul we were merely getting, you know, a contemplation of the present and the future and cause and effect of prophecy and prescient vision and all that kind of thing. That would be interesting. Um, but we do get that, I think, superimposed upon a real human drama. Um, and... I think that that's done really, really well. And we do get these reminders. Paul is Paul is 15, and as Brandon says, he's just killed a man, right? Um, um, and as good as Kevin Morgan was pointing out, is you know, it's not just cried, not it's not just tears, um, but uh, uh, he's blinded by tears. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good. Sharon Powell says, you know, he wishes mom was okay with him having a quiet planetary life, you know, with Cheney, with his, with his Fremen woman, rather than having a noble wife and a more ambitious life in the Empire. Um, yeah, there does seem to be, you know, he wants that. He wants to be, uh, he wants to be with Cheney, despite the consequences in several ways, right? You know, Jessica's like, he must be careful with these Fremen women. That's, that doesn't fit the master plan. But of course, Paul is 
has another level on top of that. Like, yes, there's his desire to be with Cheney, and there's the master plan about being emperor, which, by the way, was his plan, not hers in the first place. But then he's like, no, 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 but the master plan doesn't fit the master plan. If the master plan is to avoid the jihad, none of that fits into the master plan, right? So we see all of these different levels, but yet we don't lose sight of of this, you know, of, of Paul's tears burning his eyes, um, because he recognizes that when you kill, you pay for it. But at the same time, this level, which in some sense is sort of the lowest level, Paul at his least aware, right? Paul at his least cerebral, Paul at his least mystical, responding in a, in a really straightforward, highly emotional way to, uh, you know, a really difficult emotional moment for Paul, the 15-year-old boy, um, and yet it also touches upon the highest level as well. That is his conviction about the jihad. When you kill, you pay for it. Yeah, gosh. So when you kill somebody in a knife fight in a cave, it hurts, right? If you become emperor by setting loose the jihad to slaughter billions around the universe, that would be like, I don't know, being um, on a high pinnacle full of knowledge and experience and surrounded by an abyss or something, right? When you kill, you pay for it. Um, but I agree, Patrick, I agree. Patrick Summer says Paul is not plotting or worrying about destiny, just about the human cost of his action. Yes, and that's also the level, it seems, that informs his highest level. His desire to prevent the jihad is one of the most appealing things about Paul. I think it's one of I think Paul's greatest redeeming features, and it seems does seem to be rooted in this kind of level of human experience. Right? He's been trained as a killing machine, trained by by Duncan Idaho and 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 Gurney Halleck, trained by his mom in the weirding way of battle. Um, you know, he is he is a killing machine, but but he. F- he feels, he learns that when you kill, you pay for it. He is not going to become the monster that his mom is briefly concerned, that he's, uh, um, uh, is, 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 um, you know, his, his mom is briefly concerned he's going to become. Um, and you're right, you know, Kevin, you know, yeah, I'm not trying to make him into some kind of moral hero, like, he wants to prevent the death of millions. Isn't he a swell guy? Like, most people wouldn't really avoid the 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 death of millions um, but Paul he sure does um, but yes and no I think Kevin um, that is to say yeah I agree that most people wouldn't like just go out and recreationally kill millions of people but in Paul's position I can remember what's at stake here right um, you've got all of these other pressures: the pressure to survive, the pressure, the, the the pressure to avenge his father. The you know that that okay. What does success look like? What does victory look like? Right? Um, if you knew that you could only survive, if you knew that if you survived, the consequence of your own survival is going to be the death of millions of other people that you don't know. Um, that's different. Right, um, if you, you know, and especially if you can 
convince yourself that it might not be true. Or hey, look, you're the good guys. You're the Atreides. Remember, you're the Atreides, and the Harkonnens are the bad guys, right? They are the the bloodthirsty uh, uh, squeezing of the populace. Um, massacring of folks routinely and not caring. Um, they are the they are the bees to the rabbits. You know, child molesters on top of everything. They are the bad guys, uh, and the Sardaukar are pretty mean too. So we're going to destroy them because we're the good guys. Um, and some people are, you know, but you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, if you know what I mean, right? Um, His conviction to say it's not worth it, right? Um, he knows the plan. He knows the Atreides plan A. He knows the Atreides plan B. He can see the whole thing. He 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 has a you know he has a strategy. Um, you know the way he sort of recruits kinds and everything. Um, but um, that's. Um, that's something I think that's that's really um, still a really compelling choice that he has to make, and this seems to me the crux of what he's torn between. That is torn between his desire for all of these things, which on the surface seem not only understandable but quite admirable. Um, the Atreides plan with the Fremen, Atreides plan A, sounded. Awesome. Didn't it sound awesome? I mean, what's not to like about Atreides' plan A? I mean, yeah, you can object to some of the language, like, we must use these Fremen as a weapon. Like, that sounds kind of cold and heartless. But come on, they're the champions of the underdogs. They're not only the underdogs, they're like the underdogs who support the underdogs. I mean, the Fremen have had it bad, right? And the Harkonnens have been awful to them. So, talk about a win-win situation, right? They can come in, and the Harkonnens, who are very evil, um, they can defeat the Harkonnens so the good guys can win, and in doing so, they're also liberating the Fremen. The Fremen have been squashed, and they deserve better, and this is awesome, right? I mean, Fanta's the only bad thing... Yes, yes, okay, Nancy has a, a small quibbling objection to Atreides' plan A and that it didn't work. Yes, 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 very true. But the point is, it was an awesome plan. It was an appealing plan. It, where There's no downside to Atreides' plan A, morally speaking, pretty much, right? Um... Paul, and again, and there still seems to be no downside to Atreides' plan B. I mean, wow, that's an even better story, right? From, like, missing and presumed dead and outcast in the desert to emperor, uh, you know, and, and, and still setting the people free. And, and, and hey, you're also going to be working to support the, 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 the Arakeen ecology plan, right? We're going to make a paradise on Arrakis, and it's going to be awesome. Um, I... But now Paul knows it's not awesome, right? Or rather, he knows the non-awesome outcome which is going to come from it. But that tension, what looks like a good plan, right? What seems in, from every angle to people who don't see what Paul sees, um, who are unaware of that terrible purpose, you know, pushing towards the jihad. Um, you know, again, his um, his his division of heart, what seems to be a genuine division of heart. Um, is to me one of the one of the most compelling elements um, of the book, but um, yeah, yeah, um, 
Yeah, Carolyn says you don't become emperor and walk away with clean hands in any society. It's always a messy business climbing the mountain of power. Yeah, exactly. Which is, I think, one reason why, you know, many remember even Duke Leto, who was Mr. Atreides, right? I mean, he was he was Mr. Atreides' code and honorable to a fault, right? Um, and yet he was willing to do, or at least to suggest, some unscrupulous things in order to uh, bring about his ends, in order to to enable the survival of his house. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, more, let's keep going. So here's Paul um, after Jameis's water ceremony, and uh, he's in the cave with the water, with the, you know, the underground lake. I have seen this place in a dream, he thought. The thought was both reassuring and frustrating. Somewhere ahead of him on this path, the fanatic hordes cut their gory path across the universe in his name. The green and black Atreides banner would become a symbol of terror. Wild legions would charge into battle, screaming their war cry, Muad'Dib. Great, so the good guys win, and the consequences of the good guys become bad guys, right? The green and black Atreides banner becomes a symbol of terror, as Duke Leto foreboded, remember, in some of those Duke Leto scenes we were looking at earlier. It must not be, he thought. I cannot let it happen. But he could feel the demanding race consciousness within him, his own terrible purpose, and he knew that no small thing could deflect the juggernaut. It was gathering weight and momentum. If he died this instant, the thing would go on through his mother and his unborn sister. Nothing less than the deaths of all the troop gathered here and now, himself and his mother included, could stop the thing. So notice now he sees it going on without him. Even his own death now is not going to end it. Um, and this is why, by the way, um, some of you were suggesting last time the interpreter, you know, when I was suggesting the sort of su surface improbability of him losing the fight to Jameis, right? And when we see the fight, it's like absolutely no contest. And so the idea that there was a, you know, that the odds were that Jameis was going to beat him seemed so improbable. Um, and a couple of you were suggesting that it was him dying of a different knife wound at a later time. And there are several candidates for that. You know, there are several potential knife wounds that, that could fit that description later on in the story. Um, but this is the reason I don't believe that, um, because it's from this moment he believes that his own, him lying there dead of a knife wound is not the end of a path, right? Um, it's not, it's certainly, it's not going to prevent the jihad. It would have done. Had Jameis killed him, the legend of Muad'Dib doesn't get off the ground. Because the Jessica is cast out and presumably killed for her water. And, uh, uh, you know, and that's all... Um, it's off, right? If he loses to Jameis, the Muad'Dib thing doesn't happen. Um, yeah. And Brandon asks, when did we cross the line? What has he done so far other than best Jameis? That remember before the fight with Jameis, he was all like, "This is the crucial moment, right?" This I mean, he made a big deal about how important. Remember that scene where he was like the smallest thing, right? The smallest shift of position or a grain of sand in the wrong place could change the the destiny of the universe. I mean, that that was a it was a nexus, right? That moment, that place, and that moment. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yes, good. Philip noted. Philip uh, Lord is pointing out now green being the color of mourning, right? Yeah, we didn't know that before because it's a Fremen thing. Um, when we were looking at the green and black standard um, of uh, the Atreides, um, it has a different significance now, right? It's the green of it's the green of mourning. So green and black in that sense. Um, the, gosh, the uh, Atreides flag is looking doubly mournful now, isn't it? Um, okay, so so what are his options? What does he do? What can he do? Um, look at here towards the end of book two. Um, Cheney's insight, and Paul sees her sort of, in a sense, sort of a stand-in for the Fremen, or rather he sees her insight here as indicative of the kind of sort of low-grade Prussian insight that the Fremen in general seem to have. There's something frightening in you, she said. When I took you away from the others, I did it because I could feel what the others wanted. You press on people. You make us see things. He forced himself to speak distinctly. What do you see? She looked down at her hands. I see a child in my arms. It's our child, yours and mine. She put a hand to her mouth. How can I know every feature of you? She, too, has had visions, has had dreams of him, right? She, too, knows him and recognizes him from her own um, apparently less detailed visions of the future. Um, she doesn't see, seem even necessarily to understand that, but notice how she's talking about his effect on people. Um, you press on people. You make us see things. She says she took him away from the people, from the others, for that reason. I did it because I could feel what the others wanted. Presumably, what I take her as meaning there is that she believes they wanted to see things, right? They are wanting the visions that he will bring them. And she is resistant to that in some sense. Um, does this suggest that Cheney too has some vague sense of foreboding, right? That the relationship between him and the people who would follow him fanatically, um, the people who seek to be made to see things by him, who desire to embrace the vision and the visions or, you know, like the vision that he gives them in more than one sense, right, um, that he is bringing them, that she feels some resistance to that or concern about that um, and desires at least to postpone it. Um, but she herself sees a vision of them themselves, of them together, of the two of them. And she seems, I don't know, um, she seems to want that too. Um, she's not taking him away from the Fremen, she's taking him to herself. Um, yeah, Kevin Morgan pointed out, of course, she's Kynes' daughter, and we saw that Kynes had a sort of vision, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, on, a, on, a, on a precipice when he was near death. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was like that. Um, his vision warred against a hero. Yes, exactly. Um, does she have some kind of sense of that? 
Again, clearly not. I mean, we, it's not like we're going to see Cheney as like the voice of, you know, oh, Paul, you shouldn't do this. Like, Mwadib, yes, let us, uh, let us uh, prevent the jihad. We don't see anything like that from her. Um, but there does seem to be a kind of uneasiness here. Um, she is um, seeing... When he says, what do you see? Again, I find myself uncertain how much force to put on his lines, how much emphasis. He forced himself to speak, to speak distinctly. What do you see? I, I take, because he has to force himself to speak distinctly, that he's having a hard time speaking distinctly. It could just be the effect of the drugs, of course, but, um, <clears throat> but, uh, but it seems also that this is like, you know, this is him saying, this is important, right? Um, I want to know. What do you see, right? Um, and presumably, his question has something to do with what she just said. And what she just said was not just the fact that you make us see things, but I took you away from the others because I could feel what they wanted. Okay, more Cheney. What do you, what do you see? Is he fishing for the jihad here? Do you too get the sense that this is bad? <clears throat> that we're headed down a path which is going to bring disaster? Um, her answer? I see a child in my arms. Right? Her vision is just on them. If she does feel it in some sense, if she does see it in some way, um, if she is concerned, you know, um, Sharon Powell says uh, Cheney sees something possibly unhealthy in the mob energy. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, but if so, that seems to be won over by, outweighed by her own feelings for him, you know, her visions of them together and of their child that they're going to have. Um, just as we can see his own desire for Cheney. Him, uh, you know, this, this transition here, you know, him saying, I took you away because of the effect that you have on them. Um, and then him saying, tell me more about that. And her saying, um, I see a child in our arms. That, the, the sort of the non sequitur of her answer. Um, it's not literally a non sequitur. It is, she's answering his question, what do you see? But the shift there um, reminds me of the shift. It goes in the other direction. But it reminds me of that shift that we were looking at before from, you know, why is he singing that love song to her? Why? My mother is my enemy. She is bringing the jihad, right? Um, and again, I can see that, um, I can see that tension, that conflict in Cheney's mind as in Paul's between, on the one hand, I get the sense that something is going on here and it makes me a little uncomfy. I'm not sure this is a good idea. Um, so rather than let it happen, I took you away. But yet, I want the future visions to happen. I embrace that. Um, you know, I, I, I also, I see you and I see our child and I want that to happen. So I don't oppose the future because I want that. Um, and again, we see Paul... I've had visions of this girl, and I'm singing her a love song now. Um, you know, I'm totally anti-Jihad, but I'm kind of pro-Cheney, <laughs> right? Anti-massacre, pro-girlfriend, right? I mean, that seems like a pretty standard 
15 year old kind of outlook perhaps but um, but again that seems that's exactly the point you know the conflict between Paul as prophet um, and the moral imperatives that that vision that prophetic vision brings and Paul as human agent um, yeah um, okay sorry I'm pausing now I'm starting to uh, I'm starting to think in terms of uh, how much more I can cover no we're good we're good I'm gonna keep going a little bit more um, back a little bit now right after they've just left the you know so we let me uh, let me actually go back a second I wanted to interpose this because I wanted to look again at that conflict but um, um, no not here here um, his vision you know I've seen this place in a dream the water place right um, and he feels you know the jihad coming and everything when they leave the water cavern and Paul walking behind Cheney felt that a vital moment had passed him that he had missed an essential decision and was now caught up in his own myth he knew he had seen this place before experienced it in a fragment of prescient dream on faraway Caledon but details of the place were being filled in now that he had not seen he felt a new sense of wonder at the limits of his gift it was as though he rode within the wave of time sometime in its trough sometimes on a crest and all around him the other waves lifted and fell revealing and then hiding what they bore on their surface right there's a sense in which you can't actually see farther from the crest than from the trough if that's an illusion right when you're in the trough of course all you can see are the two waves next to you but when you're up on the top all you see are what's on the top of the other waves right around you you don't see what's in the other troughs around you right so really yeah you can see further when you're on the crest but your vision is still really pretty limited right um, through it all the wild jihad still loomed ahead of him the violence and the slaughter it was like a promontory above the surf exactly look at it yes Kevin and Brandon and Michael Philip um, uh, yeah the the um, uh, the water imagery again again with the water imagery right and notice Philip yes I, I, I like your point Philip Lord says um, uh, uh, no sorry Brandon I'm oh, sorry I'm looking the wrong one um, Brandon is pointing out how the jihad is on a pinnacle above him right yeah it's a promontory so we've got that's land right that's looming above it that is a solid thing um, not undulating like the waves around him um, and yes, Brandon, it is a little bit like a precipice upon which he you might perch with an abyss all around you. Um, something like that, perhaps. But something just happened. Nothing. A vital moment had passed him. He had missed an essential decision. Remember, he was frozen before the fight with Jameis when he was realizing, oh my gosh, this is it. Like, this is the big moment. This, this is huge. Everything that happens right now, like the fall of every grain of dust, is crucial. It could have an enormous impact on the future of the universe. 
like this is the moment. And he was frozen, like, what if I do something wrong? What if something I do causes something disastrous to happen? But then he realizes that not doing anything is also a decision, right? And maybe by not doing something, he's 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 going to to bring about something disastrous, right? Um, he just did nothing. He just did nothing. He didn't know what he should do. He was relying on this. Remember, he, this has happened before, right? Um, when they were getting into the Thopter, when they were fleeing from the last time they met with Kynes, um, Paul is realizing that he, you know, he, he was sort of frozen into indecision because he had fallen into one of those troughs in his prescient vision, and he did, and he was relying too heavily on his prescient vision. Right? Remember that scene? Um, I, he. He just passed a. Uh, he just passed a crux, right? He just passed uh, this essential moment, and he didn't do anything. What seems to be the pattern of Paul bringing about the jihad? On the one hand, you could, I mean. If you look at it from an outside point of view, it's going to take a lot of very ferocious action on Paul's part in order to bring this about, right? I mean, we still have the whole rags to riches story to go through, right? I mean, we we still have the big underdog story, the rise to power that's going to need to happen, and that doesn't happen by accident. You know, you gotta you gotta put in a lot of effort uh, to uh, go from uh, desert refugee to emperor, um, but within the framework of Paul's vision. It's not activity that leads to it. It's inactivity, right? If you just let it happen, if you just if you just let that terrible purpose carry him along, it's to the jihad that it will carry him. If he's determined not to let it happen, he needs to act, and he hasn't acted. He didn't act. I love the fact. Herbert doesn't say what he was supposed to do. How was that supposed to go differently? What back in the cave with the water? What action was he supposed to take? He doesn't know. You know, it's not even like he's kicking himself like, "Oh man, obviously that was so dumb. I should have done this." He doesn't know what he should have done. He just has the sense that he should have done something and he didn't. And now that moment is past him, and his path is chosen. Remember what he just said. Like now, if we all, if, if if unless every single one of us here dies, including, you know, Paul and Jessica, it's going to go on, right? Um, he can't change it now, even through his personal death. So what it was? What was it he was supposed to have done? We don't know. We'll never know. Does never say what it is. Um, here's at the very end of book two um, this vision that he sees of himself and of his future. You know, when he's there, he's in the, uh, you know, he's he's there with Cheney. It's after the ceremony with, you know, the, you know, he, he has the water of life, so he's, he's, you know, full of this incredible, this you know, bigger spice high than he's ever been on before. He held himself poised in the awareness, seeing time stretch out in its weird dimension, delicately balanced yet whirling, narrow yet spread like a net gathering countless worlds and for 
worlds and forces, a tight wire that he must walk, yet a teeter-totter on which he balanced. On one side he could see the Imperium, a Harkonnen called Fade Rautha, who flashed toward him like a deadly blade, the Sardaukar raging off their planet to sped to spread pogrom on Arrakis, the guild conniving and plotting, the Bene Gesserit with their scheme of selective breeding. They lay massed like a thunderhead on his horizon, held back by no more than the Fremen and their Muad'Dib, the sleeping giant Fremen poised for their wild crusade across the universe. Paul felt himself at the center, at the pivot where the whole structure turned, walking a thin wire of peace with a measure of happiness, Cheney at his side. He could see it stretching ahead of him, a time of relative quiet in a hidden siege, a moment of peace between periods of violence. What do you notice about this vision? Um, I want to... Um, I want to... This is the last passage I want to talk about tonight. Um, uh, Yes, this is the last passage I want to talk about tonight. But I, I want to hear. You know, we've we've been looking at a lot of you know Paul's decisions and Paul's visions and his sense of divergent paths and everything. What do you make of this? What do you see here? Given all the things we've been seeing and looking at, what jumps out at you here? What do you see this passage laying out for us? Okay, good. Nancy says the Fremen are holding back the war at this moment before they become the Wild Crusade. Um, Yes, yes, good. Patrick says, everyone is against them, not just the Harkonnens, but the Guild and the Bene Gesserit too. Yeah, everybody, right? So you've got everybody on the one side, it's everybody against the Fremen, right? And their Muad'Dib. Um, those are the battle lines, right? So winning is the underdog defeating all of those forces, those evil forces. The Harkonnens, the Sardaukar, you know, uh, uh, massacring people on Arrakis, the conniving and plotting of the guild, the schemes of the Bene Gesserit, those are all bad, right? But on the other hand, we have the Fremen poised for their wild crusade across the universe. The underdog good guys trying to win and yet possibly ending up doing more harm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, good. More. More. Um, yeah. Brandon uh, loves. He says it's uh, it's interesting that he sees uh, he sees a Harkonnen. Um, you know, not just like the Harkonnens in general, and not the Baron. Right. One would think that the Baron, you know, would be the figurehead of the Harkonnens. Clearly, I mean, he's not only their leader, and but you know, if there's a question of vendetta, you know, he's clearly the one who is, uh, uh, you know, against whom Paul would would desire vengeance. Um, but no, it's this vision of Fade Rautha that he sees, um, and Fade Rautha seems potentially to stand sort of for something different. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, yeah, and Kevin is pointing out how the blade is specified, um, flashing toward him like a deadly blade. Um, yeah, yeah.
Good. Nancy is recalling the metaphors of balance. We've got the tight wire and the teeter-totter, the thin wire. Um, it suggests the possibility of falling. Um, falling into the abyss, Nancy adds. Yes, I, I think so. Um, that's the other thing, isn't it, about that image of him on the pinnacle, right, with the abyss all around him? It's also that image makes it sound kind of precarious. It's not just like, here I am on my chair, and there's an abyss all around me, and I'm lonely. There's the loneliness element, but but that's not it, right? It's um, There is that sense of precariousness, like he himself could fall into the abyss. At the time, it sounded a little bit more like that pinnacle would be him at the top, him being emperor, and the abyss is the jihad that he's brought about, the, 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 you know, the, the ruin and the death that he has... Um, brought to the universe by winning, right, by coming into power. Um, but here we see he's there's 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 he thinks there's still a path that this could be avoided if he if he can walk the tight wire, right? Um, if he can if he can re- retain his balance, he's at the center. He's the pivot where the whole structure turns. Um, Cheney at his side. He could see it stretching ahead of him, a time of relative quiet and hidden siege, a moment of peace between periods of violence. Um, is that the balancing point? This seems to me to come back to this question that we've been looking at with Cheney, with the love song passage, this conflict between his personal desires, or to put it differently, between those visions of the future that he associates with his own personal happiness, which is chiefly embodied in Cheney, right, and their relationship. She is the Sahaya, right, the desert spring. It's a beautiful image. I love that nickname that he has for her. Um, it's, it's just, you know, it, it's the word and its significance are just gorgeous. Um, It's a beautiful thing, right? Totally understandable. But again, there's this tension between the foreseen future that I want to embrace and the foreseen future that I don't want to embrace. Can I have one and not the other? If I embrace one, am I also embracing the other? That seems to me a crucial question. Look at the balance imagery that we have here. First, I've got to walk a tight wire, right? And I've got on one side the Imperium and all these other things, and on the other side the Fremen and their Muad'Dib poised for their wild crusade. These are neither one of... He doesn't want to fall off either side of that tightrope. Either side would be falling off, right? It's not just I see these two things as opponents against each other. He's suggesting that too. But remember the fundamental images of him balancing. It's a teeter-totter, right? It's balancing on either side. Um... So he's in the middle, trying not to fall into the Imperium Gulf, like, uh, you know, and falling under the flashing blade of Fade, uh, that who is Fade Rautha, um, but also not to fall off on the other side, um, among the Fremen and their Muad'Dib poised for their wild crusade across the universe, right? To walk the path, um, to maintain that delicate balance, is to 
is that one chance, that slim, slim chance of neither one of those things. He neither loses and the Imperium wins and the Sardaukar and the Harkonnens, nor do the Fremen and their wild crusade happen, right? That seems to be the image of balance that we get in those first two paragraphs. In that third paragraph, it shifts. Walking a thin wire of peace with a measure of happiness, Cheney at his side, it shifts right there. He could see it stretching ahead of him, a time of relative quiet in a hidden sea. What? No, that's not the balance. Now he sees the narrow line as a brief oasis, right, like the Sahaya, a brief oasis of peace and happiness. I can, it's going to get ugly, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be painful, but I, there's a short time of happiness that I, I can do now, right? That I can indulge in, right? Um, but can he? I mean, he's changing the metaphor. I don't, it, it, that image, um, the thin wire of peace with a measure of happiness, doesn't seem exactly to fit with the thin wire that he was describing before, with the tight wire that he was describing before. The balancing here is not the same balancing. Um, and he sees himself at the center, at the pivot, where the whole structure turned. Um, I don't think that book two ends with a resolution. Um, I don't think it's obvious at the end of book two, you know, exactly where this is going, exactly where, um, that is to say, in this question of him embracing or not embracing the future, um, his path in relation to these paths that he's seeing, his desire to stop the, to, to prevent the jihad, um, you know, Atreides plan B, all these other things, um, his paths are not yet, we don't yet know exactly what he's going to try to choose or if he's going to be successful in choosing something else. Um, but I do think we're left with this doubt, with this uncertainty. Um, is Paul already too late? Not in the sense that, and can see this is what, you know, when we first brought it up, when we first learned about it way back, um, you know, at the end of book one, about the coming jihad and the race consciousness and the, you know, as the terrible purpose and all that stuff, the real, the quest, the initial question was, is it fated? Can he do anything about it, right? Um, does he really have choice or is it just, is it just destined? Is it totally beyond his control? That no longer feels exactly like the question. Now it seems at the end of book two, the question is, has he already decided? Um, how single-minded is Paul's desire? Just what is Paul willing to do to prevent the jihad? Or again, as the question I've been asking throughout the class, what does victory look like? Um, it's not. If that tight wire between the two, if that balancing act falling off neither on the one side or the other, if that is an image of victory, an image of the one narrow, tiny thread, the one, you know, the, all, most of the paths leading out end in one abyss or another, but there's like one small, narrow path that 
leads out of the abyss, past the abyss, over the abyss, right, with the abyss on either side. What does that path look like? And notice in that last paragraph, suddenly that path to victory looks like a time of peace with Cheney. Let's just be happy for a while, right? I'm going to have a relationship with Cheney. We're going to have kids. Has he made a choice through inaction? Did he miss it? Um, has has he already fallen off the tight wire? Um, and he hasn't yet realized it? Not because it's impossible, not because there is no path, not because free will is impossible, but because he's already chosen, or he's already, through inaction, chosen, even without fully, fully knowing that he chose, or what he chose. Um, he certainly, at the end here, seems to be choosing these human things, right? Seems to be choosing in um, alignment, in very understandable alignment with his desires, right? His desire, not just his desire for Cheney because she's cute, but his desire for peace, his desire for a home, his desire for, uh, you know, peace with a measure of happiness. Is that so wrong? No. Um, but um, the consequences might be jihad. Um, we'll see. We'll see. Let's keep uh, following this as we move forward. Now, several of you have noticed um, and pointed out um, that there are a bunch of things we didn't talk about today. We didn't talk about Jessica. We didn't talk about uh, uh, Nancy wanted to talk about the Fen Rings. We didn't talk about them. Um, we didn't talk much about Fade Rafa and the Harkonnens. I would like to do that, certainly. Um, but, uh, so, I welcome questions about those things. Um, if there are particular things that you would like to talk about, or particular questions, or any you know, if, if there's stuff that you really want to talk about, about Jessica and the Reverend Mother, um, about uh, about uh, uh, Baron Harkonnen and the Fenrings and Fade Rautha, um, Totally welcome that. Um, make some suggestions. Um, I really enjoy. Um, I really enjoy it when you guys suggest topics and take our discussion in particular. I mean, there obviously there are some things that I'm really interested in tracing as we go through the book. Things that I think are really are really important and the stuff that I find really, uh, um, uh, uh, really, really, really fascinating in this story. Uh, but I, I really love um, uh, you know talking about stuff that you guys are interested in um, too. So do make sure to, to send me some emails about that and we'll see we'll see if I can do a little bit better this uh, coming Q&A time than I did last time. Um, anyway, thanks very much everybody. I will let you guys go. Um, so I'll see you next week and don't forget Olson at MythGuard.org. Send me your questions for next time. Thanks everybody. Good night. <laughs>